Chapter 5 1930-1940 Overview In late 1929, Cleveland Clinic was coping with the fallout from the tragic fire and explosion that had killed 123 patients, visitors, and employees in May of that year. There were crushing financial obligations, settlements, legal bills, and rebuilding costs. Five months later, the stock market crashed. The Great Depression was underway. Cleveland Clinic took out loans on the founders' insurance policies, sold donated land, and leveraged endowment funds to stave off bankruptcy. Unemployment in Cleveland reached 30% in 1933. Everyone at Cleveland Clinic took voluntary pay cuts amounting to nearly half their total salary over five years. There wasn't much choice. Patients couldn't pay. Some bills were settled by bartering. More than one chicken changed hands. Clinic co-founder Dr. George Kreil said his abiding comfort was that he and his colleagues had earned enough before the crash to build the cathedral for service they'd dreamed of. Kreil's reputation continued to attract patients to the clinic from around the world. His extensive thyroid practice was a financial mainstay through the 1930s. Throughout the entire Great Depression, Cleveland Clinic laid off only a handful of employees. Cryle's son, Dr. George Cryle Jr., was doing his surgical residency alongside surgeons who were beginning to explore the potential of radical surgery for cancer. It was an era of excessive hope and considerable irresponsibility, he wrote later. The organization's unique model of medicine showed its value, as the clinic not only survived, but emerged with a greater reputation. The medical campus had grown from a single building to three buildings, not including the laundry-slash-power plant and ice plant. The clinic occupied about half of the block of 93rd Street between Euclid and Carnegie Avenue. Over the next several decades, it would begin an inexorable march down 93rd and out into the surrounding blocks. Surviving the Great Depression In October 1929, five months after the X-ray fire, the stock market crashed, heralding the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was at this time, with multiple lawsuits filed not only against Cleveland Clinic, but also against Lauer and Kreil and the estates of Bunts and Phillips, that the surviving founders decided to build a new three-story clinic building with a foundation to support 14 stories. They planned to connect this new structure with the original clinic building and to remodel the latter so that it would not remind people of the disaster. At the time of this decision, Kreil was 66 years old and Lauer was 63. They reasoned that if court decisions went against them and the foundation, they would all go bankrupt, so there would be nothing to lose by going forward with the expansion. The two founders started to raise money for the new building with trepidation about the difficulties posed by this task. Every day, Lauer and I spent the lunch hour in the boardroom discussing them, Kreil wrote. I was able to convince him that we would weather our difficulties. But the next day he would appear so exhausted and excited over a new angle which had occurred to him while he was fighting out the lawsuits overnight that I told him if someone struck a match near him he would explode. 
but he was always a joy. From a professional standpoint, 1929 was a good time to start building. The earnings of Kreil and Lauer were at their peak. Phillips, lost in the disaster, was replaced as head of the Department of Medicine by Dr. Russell Hayden, a nationally known physician from the University of Kansas. He began to develop subspecialty departments in internal medicine and soon accumulated a large practice in his own specialty, diseases of the blood. There were able young physicians in all departments, and the reputation and practice of Cleveland Clinic were growing rapidly. But indebtedness and the voluntarily assumed burden of paying the salaries of the staff members who had died in the disaster made it difficult to meet payroll. The financial success of the institution at this time depended mainly on the fact that some of the physicians' earnings were more than four times as great as their salaries, the excess going to the foundation. But in order to borrow the $850,000 required for the new building, Kreil and Lauer had to put up their personal life insurance policies to guarantee $150,000 of the loan. The lawsuits resulting from the disaster were settled out of court for a fraction of their face value, for the pragmatic reason that Cleveland Clinic had no liquid or negotiable assets that would make it worthwhile for the plaintiffs to bring the cases to court. Although it was unpublicized at the time, the clinic was also the recipient of generous and much-needed philanthropy in the 1930s. Among the givers was Frank Billings, founder of Billings Chapin, a paint and varnish company. Also, Elizabeth Packard, widow of James Packard, the automobile maker, donated costly radium for the use of the clinic's radiotherapy pioneers. Although the source of this unusually large quantity of radium is not known, it may be associated with the late Mr. Packard's avocation as a watch fancier. Radium at that time was being used to illuminate watch dials. In September 1932, in order to help repay the debt incurred by the disaster and the cost of the new building, all employees, including the medical staff, took a 10% pay cut. This financial curtailment was accepted graciously, if not enthusiastically, because everyone was aware of Cleveland Clinic's crisis. At that time, no one predicted the severity of the Great Depression that would cloud the years to come. Instead, there was a confident expectation about the future. Things get worse. Late in February 1933, while Grace and I were attending a dinner in Cleveland, Kreil wrote in his autobiography, one of the guests, a prominent industrialist and director of one of Cleveland's largest banks, was called to the telephone just as we were seated. He did not return until dinner was nearly over, and when he returned he seemed deeply perturbed, was without conversation, and soon left. The next day, the Maryland banks closed. The following day, most Cleveland banks announced that only 5% withdrawals were allowed. The economic depression deepened. The banks failed while Cleveland Clinic was still heavily in debt. A second 10% reduction in salaries had been necessary one month before the banks closed. Four months later, there was an additional 25% cut. Circulating money had almost ceased to exist, but its absence did not impede the incidence of disease. 
The sick still required treatment, and somehow many of them managed to pay something for it. The staff and employees remained loyal. Their choice, in those days of unemployment, lay between a low-paying job and no job at all. Kreil wrote in 1933, The one abiding comfort, as I looked at our beautiful cathedral for service, was that during the years that I had needed least and could give most, I had been able to earn in such excess of my salary that we had been able to accomplish that of which we had dreamed. Cleveland Clinic hired Remington Peck as credit and collections manager in 1934. Seven years later, Kreil and Lauer promoted him to assistant superintendent with a salary of $416 per month. He became treasurer in 1942, a position he held until his retirement in 1952. Peck gets the credit for skillfully guiding the organization's finances through the latter years of the Great Depression. The clinic survived. Planting the Seeds of Research The period just before and during the Great Depression coincided with the golden age of the thyroid at the clinic. Non-toxic goiters were endemic in the Great Lakes region, the so-called goiter belt, along with Graves' disease and other thyroid conditions. The treatment for these conditions was thyroidectomy, or removal of the thyroid. Improvements in surgical technique introduced by Kreil and the Mayo brothers made thyroidectomy safer than ever. By 1927, the clinic's mortality rate for this procedure was the lowest ever recorded at that time. Kreil performed as many as 30 thyroidectomies a day, usually in the patient's room. His unusual technique was developed to address the very real danger of thyroid crisis, a dramatic chain of events that was likely to occur when a patient with a thyroid condition was subjected to general anesthesia, surgery, or infection. This could result in atrial fibrillation, out-of-control temperature, and sometimes death. Cryo believed that fear especially could trigger a thyroid crisis. To avoid it, he developed a system called stealing the thyroid. The patient would not be told in advance when the operation was to take place. Every morning, breakfast was withheld, and the nurse anesthetists would go to the patient's bedside and administer just enough nitrous oxide to make the patient a bit giddy. On the morning of the surgery, the routine was the same, except that the analgesia was a little deeper, so the patient was unconscious when the team moved in. The neck was prepared with ether, iodine, and alcohol, then draped. A nurse stood on a chair behind the head of the bed and illuminated the operative field with a handheld light attached to a pole, a homemade device known as the Kryl stick. With a single stroke, Kryl would make a gracefully curved incision and then dissect the skin flap. He never stopped to clamp bleeders. That was the duty of the first assistant. The second assistant, hanging uncomfortably over the head of the bed, would retract the skin and cut the thread after the knots were tied. Speed was necessary during these ten-minute procedures because intravenous anesthesia had not yet been developed. Teams stood by to provide transfusion or tracheotomy in the event something went wrong. 
Largely by this means, Kreil performed more than 25,000 thyroid procedures over the course of his career. Of course, it all required teamwork and split-second timing. This was coordinated by long-serving nurses Emma Barr and Lou Adams. As chief anesthetist, Adams administered the nitrous oxide along with reassuring words in a soothing voice. It was an early example of the team of teams approach. Kreil always referred to his team members as collaborators rather than assistants. By the mid-1930s, the incidence of thyroid disease declined dramatically nationwide. The widespread use of iodized salt is generally credited. It's also possible that thyroid conditions were being overdiagnosed and overtreated. Cleveland Clinic's research program might be said to have begun in 1921 with the hiring of Dr. Hugo Frick, a mathematician with no biological experience, to head up the Department of Biophysics. This lab was mainly concerned with pursuing Kreil's particular interest in the electrical conductivity of tissue. Dr. Maria Telks, a biophysicist from the University of Budapest, was hired in 1926. She stayed on for 16 years and assisted Kreil in the invention of a photoelectric device to measure brain waves. Telks was the first woman to be a full member of the professional staff. As it happened, the first five women staff members were all part of the research enterprise. Telks, hired in 1928, followed by physicians Dr. Arda Green and Dr. Harriet Dustin, and scientists Dr. Lena Lewis and Dr. Helen Brown, all hired in the 1940s. The original research building was opened in 1928. It was connected to the hospital by the first Skyway, a short windowed bridge from the second floor of one building to the second floor of the other. In 1930, scientist Dr. Roy McCullough joined the department and helped pioneer the measurement of thyroid function through iodine levels in the blood. McCullough did some of the first research on inhibin, a hormone that helps regulate activity of the pituitary gland. These and other early research endeavors were designed to explore Kreil's theories and enthusiasms. They were largely abandoned after his passing. Research didn't revive until the arrival of Dr. Irvine Page in 1945. Cryo and Cushing and Neurosurgery In the days before specialization, neurosurgery was carried out by general surgeons. Cryle has been called Ohio's first neurosurgeon. He gained broad experience with skull fractures, treating dock workers who had been struck by swinging ore buckets in the 1890s, and moved on to more complex procedures later. Among Kreil's close personal friends was pioneering neurosurgeon Dr. Harvey Cushing of Johns Hopkins, with whom he shared numerous clinical and research interests, especially blood pressure. The Kreil-Cushing friendship transcended time and geography. In France, during World War I, the two friends worked together in a doomed attempt to save the life of the gravely wounded son of Dr. William Osler, co-founder of Johns Hopkins. Eleven years later, upon hearing first word of the explosion and fire at the clinic, Cushing dropped everything and went to Cleveland to help. Among the victims of the disaster was Dr. Charles Locke, Jr., 
a former student of Cushing, who had been appointed the clinic's first full-time neurosurgeon in 1924. After the death of Locke, the clinic needed to find a replacement. Dr. W. James Gardner, then at the University of Pennsylvania, was suggested as a possible candidate. Cryle and Lauer invited him to Cleveland, supposedly to meet the staff. Instead, the day after his arrival, they surprised him with a challenging patient case and an operating room prepared for surgery. Though Gardner was expected to catch a train right back to Philadelphia, he couldn't resist a challenge and performed the difficult procedure in two hours and twenty minutes. Cryle and Lauer offered him the job, $6,000 a year, only a few months before the onset of the Great Depression. Gardner worked at the clinic for 33 years. He trained generations of neurosurgeons and was an innovator in his field. Gardner advocated the seated position for patients having cranial surgery. In 1938, he introduced a new type of surgical chair to make this approach safer for the patient and more convenient for the surgeon. In 1958, he designed a pneumatic suit, updating a concept originally proposed by Kreil decades earlier to prevent intraoperative hypotension and air embolism in seated patients. In 1959, he was the co-developer of a type of cervical tongs now bearing his name and still in use. The concept of the waterbed was introduced by doctors in the 1800s, but its modern revival might be said to have begun in 1961, with Gardner's design for a waterbed to prevent pressure sores in children with hydrocephalus. His bed included temperature controls and an alarm to detect leakage. Many of his other insights and technical innovations have been widely adopted and are now integral to the practice of neurological surgery. Gardner's associate for 30 years was Dr. Alexander Bunce, son of co-founder Dr. Frank Bunce. The younger Bunce specialized in the surgery of protruded intervertebral discs and spinal cord tumors. First Head Nurse Throughout this period, Cleveland Clinic doctors had the able support of some remarkable nurses. Lillian Grundy's is one example. Grundy's looks out at us from a picture taken on the eve of her departure for France in 1917 with a firm mouth and deep-set eyes that seem to peer far into the future. Grundy's began working for the founders in 1912 and worked for the clinic until her retirement 40 years later. She served in Europe with Kryle's teams in both 1915 and 1917 and was appointed the clinic's first head nurse in 1921. The instincts she developed in wartime allowed her to escape the 1929 disaster and work heroically for two days straight caring for the injured and dying, including close colleagues, after that terrible event. Lillian Grundy's would be difficult to improve on in a fictional account, wrote Dr. William Proudfit many years later. I never heard her called anything but Miss Grundy's. She had been a nurse, but doctors Kreil and Lauer thought that she should be the purchasing agent for the expanding clinic, a position to which she did not aspire and for which she had absolutely no training. 
Miss Grundy's had a razor-sharp mind, a retentive memory, and a good sense of values, however, so she met the need quickly. She had no pretense about her, but no one could fail to be impressed on first meeting her. Most often she would be at her desk using two telephones, one tucked between her head and her right shoulder, the other held in her left hand, and she was taking notes. She would always greet you immediately and might converse with you if her two phone calls were not active. Miss Grundy's was courteous, but it required no great insight to realize that she was a busy woman. Despite the pressures on her, she was always anxious to do a favor for someone who could not help her in any way, such as one of the young physicians in training. She never seemed aware that she was doing a favor. As the purchasing agent during World War II, Grundy's was charged with rounding up scarce equipment in a time of rationing and shortages. She died in 1969 and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery in honor of her service with the Lakeside Unit. Growth and Maturation In 1934, the Depression was still in its depths. Although Kreil was then 70 years old, his surgical practice continued to provide a major part of Cleveland Clinic's income. His interest had gradually shifted from thyroid surgery, which had attracted patients from all over the world, to surgery of the adrenal glands, a field he was exploring to treat such diverse conditions as hypertension, peptic ulcer, epilepsy, hyperthyroidism, and neurocirculatory asthenia. The results of these operations were sometimes promising but rarely spectacular. The field was so controversial that Kreil's personal practice began to shrink. During that time, he underwent surgery on his eyes for glaucoma and soon thereafter began to develop cataracts. Fortunately, Kreil had able young associates in the Department of Surgery, including Dr. Robert Dinsmore, who continued his interest in surgery of the thyroid and breast, and Dr. Thomas Jones, who had already become nationally famous for abdominal surgery, particularly for cancer of the rectum and colon. The surgical specialties were headed by capable surgeons, and under Hayden's leadership, the Department of Medicine was expanding rapidly. Therefore, Kreil began to disengage himself from conventional surgery and to spend more of his time researching the energy systems of man and animals, traveling twice to Africa to collect and study the brains, thyroids, and adrenal glands of various species of African wildlife. In 1941, Kreil set up what he called a Museum of Intelligence, Power, and Personality in a temporary structure adjacent to the old clinic building. The museum was assembled under Kreil's direction to display his specimens and popularize his scientific theories. Dr. Alexander Bunce wrote in 1965, Many parties of schoolchildren visited the museum and were fascinated by the mounted specimens of lion, alligator, elephant, gazelles, giraffe, shark, porpoise, manatee, zebra, and many other interesting creatures. Models of the hearts of racehorses and whales, fashioned of paraffin or plaster, and wax models of the sympathetic nervous systems, brains, thyroids, and adrenal glands attracted the interest of the curious and challenged the logical thinking of visiting scientists and physicians. 
Those of us who were working at the clinic in those days were never surprised to encounter a dead lion or alligator in the freight elevator of the research building, or occasionally even a live one, as well as a battery of vats filled with viscera of various animals. In the study of this material, emphasis was placed on the relative weight of thyroid, adrenals, liver, and brain, and the complexity of the autonomic nervous systems. Mr. Walter Halley, later to become one of Cleveland Clinic's trustees, recalled the following episode. I got a call from Dr. Kreil one day asking if I would come down to the clinic and serve in some sort of protective capacity, armed with my Mauser 30-06 while they were attempting to uncrate a lion sent to him from the Toledo Zoo. The lion was brought up on an elevator in a cage, in a very irritable condition, and moved into the room where he was supposed to be dispatched in some fashion that had not been too thoroughly worked out. After much thrashing around, the lion was quieted, and someone gave him a shot to put him away peacefully. I hesitate to think what would have happened had the lion broken out of the cage, which he was attempting to do. Fortunately for everyone, we did not have to use our firearms, because firing a high-powered rifle in a room 14 by 18 with Dr. Kreil and three other doctors would have made it problematical just who would get drilled. I can't tell you what an interesting session I had afterwards watching him dissect the lion and listening to his marvelous running-fire commentary about the glands and various parts of the anatomy. Cars and Parking During the 1930s and 1940s, the clinic expanded down the block of East 93rd Street from Euclid Avenue toward Carnegie Avenue. Its neighbors on Carnegie were mostly automotive-related businesses, dealerships, parts stores, and repair shops. One of the latter was an establishment known as the Wright Garage on the north side of Carnegie. Wright was a prominent black entrepreneur. Among his garage employees was, for a short time, future Olympic gold medalist Jesse Owens. The clinic itself was not immune to the new automotive tone of the neighborhood. It bought up all the frontage on Carnegie between 93rd and 94th Streets and erected a structure called the Motor Center Building. This two-story building would become the predecessor of all clinic parking garages. But before that, the clinic rented it out to various automobile dealers, including a seller of Dodge automobiles. The Dodges sold so well from the clinic showrooms that the dealer eventually built an extension on Carnegie. As the years went by, however, the top dealers left the neighborhood, leaving only smaller automotive enterprises. The clinic eventually transformed the showroom building into something more profitable, a parking garage. The building operated in this capacity well into the 1960s before it was torn down for the South Hospital extension. Another building, formerly housing a business called the Auto Top Company at 96th and Carnegie, served for many years as the clinic's print shop and sign-making facility before being torn down to make way for the Lerner Research Institute building in 2000. Some remnants of this era still exist. A former Packard automobile showroom on the south side of 93rd and Carnegie was incorporated into the laboratory medicine building when it was erected in 1980. 
anyone crossing the bridge over Carnegie at that corner can still see the Packard logo incised on the capitals. Another remnant is the Motor Center Company, the clinic's for-profit entity that owned and managed the dealership buildings. The Motor Center Company came to own the clinic's parking facilities and served as a holding company for its hotel enterprises. Some Memorable Individuals Cleveland Clinic had been growing steadily ever since the financial depression began to lift, and the number of employees had increased from 216 in 1930 to 739 in 1941. Who were these employees? While the names and stories of the early doctors and administrators are justly remembered, little information has survived about the people who may have filled other possibly no less important roles. Some of these individuals were recalled by Dr. George Cryle Jr. and Dr. William Proudfit in separate articles in the July-August 1987 edition of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Here are a few of the names and impressions they shared. Business manager Litta Perkins established Cleveland Clinic's financial processes and kept the place running. Tragically, she died in the disaster of 1929. Her friends and colleagues remembered her as a first-rate accountant with an analytical and comprehending mind and a wit which gave delight and charm. She also kept many important financial records in what was described as her photographic memory, giving the clinic an additional reason to regret her loss. Alongside Perkins, Mary Slattery, who had also worked with Bunts and Kryle in their old office, served as financial secretary, a position she held for more than 30 years. In those days, there were no or few fixed charges for patient care services. The price of a given service for a given patient was determined by Slattery and no one else. The clinic's sliding scale meant that she might charge an indigent patient nothing, and a wealthy patient thousands of dollars. It was her job to interview each patient before their procedure, giving each one an estimate of their expenses and billing them for services rendered. Her integrity was unquestioned, and whatever she estimated, that was what the patient paid. Ulysses Smith was in charge of the doctor's dressing room. He taught the young doctors about masks and gowns, and in those days of high procedural mortality, he boosted surgeons' morale through his sympathy, encouragement, and good humor. Smith worked at the clinic for almost 50 years. Fleming Stevens and Andrew Eanes were longtime elevator operators, hosts, and greeters to both patients and families. Eanes was especially noted for learning the names of everyone who worked at the clinic, as well as frequent patients and their families. He had a warm, personal greeting for everyone. Eanes's wife, Beatrice, worked at the clinic as a housekeeper. It was said that between them, Andrew and Beatrice Eanes knew everything that was going on in the enterprise. Ulysses Smith, Stevens, and the Eanes were among the clinic's first black employees. Pipe-smoking Ralph Edmonds oversaw the clinic's first animal laboratory until his retirement. Philosophical and imperturbable, Edmonds brought his pet dog to work, where it slept in a corner of the animal lab. The clinic's first pharmacist, 
Herb Decker, was precise of speech and action, and able to count pills with remarkable speed. He was also an admired tenor, and with Dr. William Engel, Dr. James Gardner, and Dr. Guy Williams, formed a vocal quartet that performed informally at clinic celebrations. From its earliest days, the clinic has had a machine shop. The shop was located on the top floor of the clinic building. Its team of skilled technicians was overseen by Valentine Seitz, who, without any college degree, created specialized surgical instruments on demand. Seitz worked with Dr. Otto Glasser on the intricate devices that went into the first dosimeter. Eddie Rogers has been called the first physician assistant. Surgeon Dr. Thomas Jones recalled that Rogers joined the clinic soon after the establishment of the Oxley Homes, serving as head man, able to carry patients up and down the stairs. He became part of the Department of Urology in 1928 and served patients at the clinic for 42 years. Working closely with department head Dr. Charles Higgins, Rogers performed prostate massage treatments, urethra irrigations, catheterizations, and stricture dilations with sensitivity and humor. He was so skilled and knowledgeable that even doctors called him Doc or Rogers, but never Eddie. And, of course, there were many others. Jones also remembered those from the clinic's earliest days who were still with us today and deserving commendation in 1946. These included Mr. Reich in the Division of Laboratories, Mr. Demerel, the glassblower, Miss Duncan in the Supply Room, and Mrs. Byros in the Maintenance Division. The End of the Founders' Era Although Kreil remained president of Cleveland Clinic until 1940, more and more of his executive duties had been turned over to an administrative board composed of four staff physicians. They were responsible for the professional aspects of administration. The board of trustees, then composed of laymen, except for the two surviving founders, was responsible for properties and finances. Prosperity had returned to the country, and it seemed that Cleveland Clinic was out of its financial straits. But other troubles lay ahead, many of them arising from personality conflicts. For Cleveland Clinic, governed as it had been by the founders for many years with no thought of succession planning, the transfer of authority was bound to be difficult. As the old leaders faltered or stepped down, there ensued a struggle for power among the next generation of leaders. It was at this point that the Board of Trustees, which had previously acted mainly in support of the Founders' decisions, showed their value. Without them, it is doubtful that the institution could have survived. While physician leadership has gone on to become a thoroughly ingrained part of the clinic's culture, it does not necessarily mean that able physicians will always be the best executives and administrators. Physician leadership needs to take place within an organizational framework that allows physicians to use their professional wisdom and experience most effectively to guide the institution. By 1940, Kreil's eyesight was failing badly, and he retired as president of the clinic. 
His brother-in-law, Henry Sherman, a former industrialist who at the time was a clinic trustee and president of the Society for Savings, a Cleveland financial institution and forerunner of Key Bank, succeeded him. Sherman was married to Kryle's sister-in-law, Edith McBride, and was a trustee of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation from 1936 to 1956. He is remembered not only for his wise counsel in the affairs of the clinic, but also for his friendly concern for the professional staff, many of whom he knew personally. Although Lauer was still active in an advisory capacity in 1940, he was by then in his 70s and was equally anxious to turn over the administrative responsibilities to the next generation.